This is the center for religion and the city. The next stop is Contagion, Religion and Cities. Welcome to the very first inaugural episode of the Contagion, Religion and Cities podcast. I am Amanda Frediasse, co-host and co-director of Contagion, Religion and Cities, a project of the Center for the Study of Religion in the City at Morgan State University's Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies. The podcast's aim is to facilitate interdisciplinary dialogue on the convergence of religion, health, disease, and urbanism. Today, on our very first episode of the podcast, we will be discussing Wendy Marshall's groundbreaking 2011 monograph entitled Potent Mana, Lessons in Power and Healing. Wendy Marshall joins us today on the podcast to discuss her monograph, along with a number of other scholars, including Harold Morales, the director of the Center for the Study of Religion in the City, Sierra Lynn Lawson. She's part of our podcast team. Um, ben Sachs, Daisy Vargas, Isaiah uh, Ellis, and Rupa Palai. It's going to be an exciting show today, so I'll get let Cher Afghan-Tareen, my co-host and co-director, get us started. Thank you, Amanda, for that introduction. I'll briefly summarize and distill the key contributions in Wendy Marshall's Potent Manor. What I see Wendy arguing Potent Manor is, I think I see the main contribution for me as a reader is she wants to challenge a kind of a Western scientific or biomedical uh, approach to health and healing, which reduces these two phenomenon to physiological changes or abnormalities in a human body and the body in that context understood as kind of an atomized body. And instead, what she wants to argue is that health and healing, health and healing and, uh, and illness and sickness, they're all manifestations of the reproduction and the breakdown of social relationships. And these relationships are reproduced and broken down around the juncture of the private, very intimate spaces of the home. They happen in the very mundane everyday activities that we engage in to survive, such as eating food and, and the things we do with our bodies, such as dressing and performing, the works we do, the kind of playful, leisurely things we do to experience time in our day-to-day -day life. And her main insight comes about through this particular focus on this concept of mana, as the title so very well uh, you know, uh, reveals right there, potent mana. Mana is, I see, a kind of a mentality. I see mana as an emotion that circulates across and between bodies of humans and non-human entities. So that would entail the bodies of chiefs, the bodies of locals, the bodies of farmers, the bodies of fishermen, the bodies of men and women and children. But we're also talking about the bodies of trees, the bodies of rocks, of the ocean, of creeks, and of the forest. And mana is an expression of both health and illness. So when there is illness, all of these bodies will express it in one form or the other. So for instance, a great example I recall is when there is a military that is trying to build roads over a space that was deemed very sacred, that space will revolt angrily and some kind of a disaster will unfold. That is an expression of mana. 
I see it as a critique of Western development, as a suggestion that Western development isn't as technologically as advanced as it seems to suggest it is. So I'll just briefly outline the book, uh, rather than going chapter by chapter, I just want to go more chronologically around the three phases in Hawaiian history that uh, Wendy Marshall talks about. One would be the pre-colonial, second would be colonial, and third would be this particular moment that she calls the decolonizing moment. In the pre-colonial, one of the main insights I gained from that book is that Hawaiians had a very robust, technologically advanced understanding of urban design, such that when people moved from one place to another, their movement wasn't impeded by legal categories of the private or the public. Instead, people moved to uh, maximize their production and their consumption of the material ecologies around them. So you could go to the forest and build and, and, and you know, use the wood to build a canoe. You could go to the farm and, and, uh, and produce uh, sweet potatoes uh, to, uh, to eat. Uh, so there were hierarchies, but those hierarchies were there to facilitate movement rather than impede movement. Then came the colonial moment, specifically the British come around the late 18th century. And one of the key turns in the colonial movement is an understanding of space as very bounded and controlled as opposed to fluid and dynamic. That shift manifests in both humans and non-humans. So for instance, you have the construction of highways, you have the construction of suburban housing units, you got military garrisons, uh, which are gonna de displace and, and um, and, and rupture and, and a kind of an insult onto the, the well-being of the material non-human ecologies. But then there are also other kinds of institutions that are developed which were there, which were developed to actually create health, but instead created illness instead, such as psychiatric wards and clinics and hospitals. The decolonizing moment that Wendy uh, 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 looks at, in, particularly in her fieldwork in this one particular coastal town of Wa'anae, uh, which is on the crossroads. It is away from metropolitan and urban settings like Honolulu, but nevertheless, it is connected to those areas as well because many of the folks who live here used to once live in Honolulu and were displaced by, for instance, by the construction of the international airport that would displace an entire community. So it is at the crossroads and what she finds in this particular moment of decolonizing is that to decolonize is to remember the past. Remembering is healing because forgetfulness is sickness. But in remembering the past, you don't procure the past or bring the past back alive because the past always ceases to exist. So instead what you're engaging in is a rejection of this particular understanding of these narratives that were that were written about Hawaiians as folks who are passively just inevitably being dominated by colonial forces. And so they had either two options, one to Americanize and to assimilate, or the other option being to just completely be obliterated by those colonial forces. And instead what we see happening is a much more playful, uh, a much more exciting and hopeful kind of an understanding of what decolonizing means. Decolonizing doesn't just mean rejecting the colonial past, but rather to reconfigure it in a particular way that allows people to remember that past in order to redress all the sickness and illness that colonialism caused onto the people with an ultimate objective of imagining alternative futures. So it's a really book about the past. It is very reverential towards the past, but I also see as a book about the future, really. And the point here being is that 
to remember the past is again to recognize that in that past we can see moments where things could have been different that human beings have an agency and i see the particular example of a locally run clinic uh a kind of a, a place where people who were uh, suffering from drug abuse would come to seek healing it is similar to a clinic but it is not the clinic it is a rejection of the clinic and i see that particular space as a kind of exemplifying uh, what decolonization means in this uh, in this book so uh, with that i would uh, have amanda uh, join and uh, ask a question to start off this discussion of of food and manna what's very interesting to me was at the start of your monograph you explain how you initially assumed that the native hawaiian substance abuse and treatment centers were likely places for the instantiation of nationalist ideology but over the course of your field research in Wa'anae, Hawaii, your perspective changes as you discover the significance of mana, which is so key in your book. Um, and mana is specifically its importance for Hawaiian communities' efforts to heal from the violence and trauma of colonization. I wonder, um, Wendy, if you could tell us more about the journey and process that led you to this discovery? Thanks, y'all, um, for having me. Um, I, can I start more recently and then go backwards? Um, I would like to say that I'm, I'm honored to be here for you to talk about my book. It was published at 2000, in, in 2011 at the same time that I was denied tenure at the University of Virginia. Um, so I um, uh, you know, wonder about what the point of writing um, academic books like this is. So I just want you to know my sort of suspicion um, on the academy um, and on academic publishing. Um, if anything, my journey post Potemana and um, post um, stable academic job has helped me to understand better what it means to be colonized because I had my own um, uh, serious downwardly mobile trajectory following um, being removed from my position at the University of Virginia. Um, so I uh, just want you all to know my um, take on the academy. Um, I was in graduate school in the 90s. Oh, and just to say that, so the book was published in 2011. It was never um, ever even critically reviewed. Um, it was, it felt to me that, that it was just ignored. So I'm, I'm excited for opportunities to be able to talk about it Although in the years since the book was published, I've done a lot of other things. Um, and so my mind is actually in a, a totally different place. Um, but I will say that I was a graduate student in the 90s, which was a high postmodern moment. Um, I walked into the PhD program, um, a Marxist, and felt challenged uh, the whole time with um, post-structuralist and you know, discourse-centered um, work. Um, so my approach to the work was initially one of trying to understand nationalism and nationalisms, which was a big deal in the 1990s. And, um, and so uh, I went for an initial, initial field work and tried to fit that, you know, fit what I was experiencing into that framework 
and found that it really didn't fit. First of all, because people weren't talking about nationalism, they were talking about decolonization. Um, and so that sort of, um, you know, part of being a good ethnographer is being open to what you find. Um, and so that, that, was, that was what I found. And so I shifted my focus from na a, a study of nationalism in, in Hawaii to um, one of decolonization. And I just wanted to follow up and say that your book, Potent Mana, is actually required reading at Florida State University's Department of Religion. Um, so Cher Afghan and I were required to read your novel, um, your monograph. Is, and it has had a that, tremendous impact on my own work. Is that because Joseph Helwig teaches that's there? That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, you will have influenced a whole generation of scholars, actually, well, such good. as myself. I so. guess. Yeah, your um, idea of mana, specifically healing as relational, has been so transformative um, for my own life and for my own research in Africa, just the notion of this radically different way of approaching health and healing, um, rather than focusing on the atomized body, as Sher Afghan said, but to look at the environment, to look at society, to look at familial relations, to look at the food, to look at the earth, right? Um, so. I, I think it is, uh, and, and this I idea of your field work, how also something that, um, as someone else can join in here next, um, just the idea that you go into field with, work with a certain idea and the humility and modesty that it takes to change um, and allow yourself to be changed by your work. So I think that's really- I, I'm pretty sure that for um, generations, anthropologists have had little humility and haven't changed it. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, right. But, um, but that's, that's part of the problem of who was doing anthropology and what for. Um, and then just to follow up on that, Amanda, I just want to say that it's very, very clear to me that health is uh, a power relation, that there is no health without political power, cultural integrity. And that, I think that's the sort of big um, thing that I'm arguing about in Potent Mana. We have Rupa, uh, who would love to join the conversation and ask a question or a comment, Rupa. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, Wendy, thank you so much for um, sharing your experience, um, not only with um, doing the ethnographic work, but also with the academy. Um, I myself am an anthropologist in an Asian American studies program. And so it was a delight to read um, this ethnography that like spoke to so many different things um, and really captured that connection with like medical anthropology and religion and the way we think about the body. And one thing that kept um, coming up was the way that um, you highlight this relationship between people, places, spaces and spirits um, and we're able, um, we're able to connect it with your own experience as an organizer in Harlem. And um, I thought it'd be interesting if you could talk a little bit more, um, not only with your um, ethnography in Hawaii, but um, also if this cam has come up more recently with your work about the way that um, we are in relationship with the spaces and with each other. Um, because I thought that was very interesting when you have this um, moment of talking about your organizing in Harlem and how um, neighbors had these perceptions of each other um, that were not actually accurate, but still was so meaningful in how they engaged themselves and how they understood what their environment was. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Um, yeah, I think I have, I have a more recent example than that, which is the temple is located um, in the middle of um, uh, 
North Central Philadelphia, which is a historic black community. And I was part of an effort to wage a fight against Temple building a, sta a stadium in the community, um, which we actually have been successful thus far um, in, in stopping the stadium. Um, but, uh, you know, the issue, the issue was that a stadium would continue the gentrification and displacement and eviction of folks who have lived there for a really long time. Um, and um, put small businesses out of thing, introduce a lot of culturally and racially different people into the neighborhood who are loud and have too many cars and take up too much space. Um, but in the, in the process of that struggle, I heard over and over again, people talking about um, the land of North Central as a place where they belonged and, and um, feeling the um, gentrification, displacement were not like abstract concepts. There were things that were done to your body and your soul and your children when you were forced out of your house where you don't have anywhere to go. So, um, I mean, I think that Mindy Fullove's work in Root Shock um, explores some of that. Um, what, what are the traumas that are induced when people are forced to leave the place where they belong? Um, and, you know, I mean, that's, that's interesting for a lot of reasons. Um, because there's a lot of forced migration all over the world and in, in, in the country, in the history of this um, united country. Um, so those are all ways to understand health that go beyond the biomedical and the Western scientific. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wanted to ask a, a follow-up related to that, um, specifically um, with this idea of against the biomedical kind of this idea. Um, I really enjoyed uh, chapter three titled What the Data Hide? Because um, I feel like that's where you really um, lay out that important argument about um, specifically public health um, and healthcare practitioners and providers. This notion of how they go specifically public health goes with a statistical model mm -hmm. to understanding health among communities. Um, and, and this exclusive focus on a statistical model um, and what the problems that are encountered with it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I wonder if you could talk more about when we just focus on statistics, when we're talking about health, what are we missing? Um, mm -hmm. And what are the potential problems that are encountered? Well, we're missing spirit. We're missing um, religion. We're missing relationality and connection. Um, and those are all things that statistics can't, can't capture, but all things that are critical to human beings' health. Um, so, you know, statistics ends up being kind of an alibi for, um, you know, all kinds of horrible things that happen to people. Because in the minds of, you know, hegemonic biomedicine and Western science, if there's data, then that says, uh, that that like justifies whatever's going to happen if there's data to support it. But you know, poetry is another way of understanding reality. Um, music, songs, um, there are a lot of other ways of understanding. Um, science is just one, data is just one way. Yeah, I feel like in the case of specifically to like Native Hawaiians, but I feel like we could even apply it in the COVID pandemic too, because I see a lot of the statistic analysis being used in public health right now, specifically, right, when we look at COVID-19 and we look at its preponderance of effects on African-Americans, Hispanics, Latinos, right, you see that over and over again. 
Um, but there's no real analysis. What's interesting is they'll say, okay, well, you know, you're three times as likely to get COVID-19 if you're African-American than if you're white. And then they quickly pass over what that means, what it entails and why that is. You know, um, and I feel like that's where I think with um, Potent Mana, you do a good job explaining too with native Hawaiians, they were in a similar situation because when you use, um, you know, statistics, statistics were being used to show, oh, look, um, locals, um, which is also something we talk about, the category of locals, so what that means, you do a good job talking about, had this preponderance of disease, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, right? And the statistics kept pointing it out. Um, but at, in a way, the statistics were almost used to blame Native Hawaiians for that. Yeah, and to, and to um, you know, obscure the source of that um, disease. You know, so the thing about racial data from the COVID pandemic is that so, you know, in some places in Kansas, black people are six times more likely to get COVID than white people. But because the mainstream media, it is, is a bourgeois media and is connected to the status quo and upholding capitalism, they can't bring themselves to, to talk about why that is, that black bodies or brown bodies are, um, are more likely to get sick because they can't really talk about class, right? So. Um, or, and besides class, they can't really talk about what are the effects of historical trauma over many generations. Um, you know, how do, how does the experience of colonization live still among um, indigenous Hawaiians? How does the experience of um, enslavement and Jim Crow and mass incarceration live still um, in black bodies? So there's a whole lot that that data doesn't tell you and it often doesn't seem to be in the interests of much of the press to try to explain it, right? So it's convenient to make it be about race um, when uh, in many ways race is a proxy for class, but also not entirely. And that's, I think maybe that's some of what I try to talk about in Potent Mana because across class, um, for example, black women as well as indigenous women have really shitty maternal and infant health outcomes. Um, and so even when um, black and brown people achieve a tiny modicum of economic security, their bodies are still um, subject to um, all kinds of, of, of health disparities and damage. Sierra, would you like to ask a question or share a comment? Yeah, so I, um, first of all, I just agree with both of you. And I'm thinking a lot about people who, you know, regardless of whether or not we even grant authenticity to like Western forms of medicine, but people who are like not epidemiologists using calculators and saying like, well, this is how likely and, you know, sharing that publicly on social media and saying like, that that authorizes a certain discourse on how you behave during a pandemic, I think. Um, yeah, it's very frustrating. I would agree. But I think as you're touching on, it's not all that different than when statistical data is used to authorize certain stereotypes related to healthcare. And I mean, in places like Alabama, where midwives have been illegal, pretty much legislation didn't come up till 2019. Um, and, you know, that's not an anomaly. That's, you know, a way to make people have children in state sanctioned institutions where they can be documented in a certain way. Um, like that has an effect on women's bodies. Like there's I think only 
a few OBGYNs in like the campus area that women can even go to. Like it's very limited access for a place that's bringing a lot of people there is basically my point with that. But um, I'm thinking about what you said. I think it's on page 90 something where you bring up um, Michelle Rolf Trio and you're talking about how, you know, when we're talking about the past, we're always doing it in the present and um, disrupting a certain stereotype. I think, what's the word that you use? Basically um, how uh, colonialist historians have used the story to tell a certain narrative about the past. And, and I, I just wonder if like, um, I mean, you say it at certain other points here, but is like, when we're producing scholarship, is that one site where we can disrupt these stereotypes authorized by statistical data um, and kind of like throw a wrench in the machine, in the cogs of the machine and say like, um, you know, what is being represented or represented as objective data is not the lived out experience or reality or whatever we were, word we use to authorize the bodily state of that. Um, you know, those aren't in one-to-one -one re relation. How do we responsibly show that in our scholarship, I guess, is my question. Um, Thanks. Scholarship, I guess, would then be the next question, right? And what was that last part? If we choose to do that work as scholarship, I guess, then would be the next question. So in general, in my opinion, um, the Western Academy, the U.S. Academy is a monument to white supremacy. Um, and so I, I think that it needs to be overhauled from one end to the other. And I doubt whether or not in the current configuration, um, scholarship plays much of a liberatory role, right? I worked, I had, you know, a year and a half in the field, wrote a book, it sat on a shelf. I'm really glad you guys are into it, but you know, its impact is limited in terms of, of what the relationship is and who can even read it, right? Because, you know, although I will send anybody a free PDF, um, you know, you have to buy that shit. Um, you know, you have to be able to get through the, um, the remnants of the thickets of my postmodern <laughs> lingo, you know what I mean? So I don't, I don't, I don't, I will not tell you that I think your ethnography or your anthropology is going to be liberatory. I don't think that there is much liberatory education outside of revolutionary movement and, um, you know, uh, work to create a society that is not fucked up like this one is. Um, I, I, what I see is, um, you know, uh, a, a system in which old, uh, primarily white people have control over what counts as knowledge production. Um, and they police that shit rigorously, which is why somebody like me ends up not having tenure because I was, had no intention ever of fitting within the parameters of that knowledge production. Um, and lived my life accordingly. So I think that um, instead of worrying about how our scholarship is going to, you know, take some shackles off of people's eyes, we need to focus on figuring out what what does a university look like? What does education look like in a in a liberated society? Right? How do we? Um, how are we figuring out how to feed ourselves and clothe ourselves, take care of our babies, build the housing that we need? Um, and challenge, you know, white supremacy, racialized capitalism, all that heteropatriarchy, all that stuff. So I'm, I, I'm sorry if that's um, not acceptable, but that is my opinion. 
Yeah, I could um, follow up there too on uh, various ways because I think um, there's a connection here between education and health that I think you're definitely drawing out, Wendy, here that I think is really, really important and how we conceptualize of education um, as somehow um, separate, demarcated, and apart from health. Um, and I'm actually reminded of during this pandemic that a lot of people are talking about higher education, education in general, um, and in particular, one thing that I'm um, just kind of interested to see your perspective on it is during the pandemic, at least in America, you know, this idea of school closures, um, sending kids back home to be homeschooled and, and like homeschooled in a way, right? With uh, and embracing technologies to do so, right? Kind of a homeschooling movement here. Um, and, and I guess overall, like, you know, when we're thinking about I read an article just recently that's on the Atlantic that how education is seen as an afterthought to the pandemic or an afterthought to health. Um, do you think that the problem here is like we need to reconceptualize how we think of education and its role in facilitating the health of a community? Yeah, I think that um, the whole um, the discussion about what's going to happen with schools in the fall, public schools in the fall, is all about getting people to get back to work so capital can suck up some profit, right? I think that's the main, um, the main issue. Um, uh, and I mean, I don't know where about you guys' campuses, but Temple claims that it's going to be open in the fall, you know, against the wishes of, um, of faculty. Um, so when you, when you first asked me the question, I wanted to say this, um, I wanted to say too, not to be overly provocative, um, you know, some of the dumbest people I know have PhDs and some of the people who are most confused about the relationship between bodies and power and health have PhDs, right? So like the systems that we have to educate us um, are actually miseducating us. And I think you can see sort of the bankrupt, mediocre nature of what counts as the, you know, the professoriate in the, in the academy to see that. What have they done for anybody lately, really? I mean, so I think um, you know, what we mean by education and what the goals of education are, um, um, are, are important things to struggle over. Um, and I think that, I mean, just you know, the fact that it, at my campus, and I'm sure this is true at yours, adjuncts who are low paid, have no health insurance and um, absolutely no job stability, teach more than half of the undergraduate courses. So you know, as a monument to white supremacy, as a plantation, it continues those structures over and over again and produces knowledge that is useless, in fact, that is complicit with power. Um, so I think we need to think about what, um, what do we mean when we say somebody is educated? You know, what do we mean when we say, what happens? You know, what is, what is the point of education? And I think um, I am a socialist and I think that socialist, socialism is about human development and education is about human development. Um, and um, that is not what's happening now at all. Then kind of building up on that point, because I wanted to transition to talking about technologies too in this conversation, because I think it, um, talking about education, we have to talk about technologies, <laughs> which are facilitating certain models of education. Do you potentially see that the COVID-19 pandemic could alter the way we think about education, maybe for the, for the worse and for the better in some regards. Um, because I know my colleague, Sher Afghan, he focuses on the homeschooling movement among Muslim women um, who have had a surge of interest 
um, and now they're coming into the fore in popularity. Um, who are these women that have started this movement? Um, because it's very interesting because that seems to almost be, if we are turning more back to the home and local, it, uh, that seems to me uh, maybe a new model that is actually in line with old models of education that maybe will be at odds with capitalism in some ways. I know what you think. Well, I think if something's going to be at odds with capitalism, that's to say it's at odds with capitalism. Um, I don't, I don't know, um, share a lot about homeschooling. Um, I have a deep suspicion about what happens when children can't grow up with other children and learn stuff um, in their in their cohorts. Um, so um, I don't really know. I don't really know how to answer that because I feel like I don't have enough um, background and understanding. Um, I think that schools are, have the potential to be, um, public education has the potential to be an incredible resource in a democratic society. Um, and I don't think that's been achieved. I'll just quickly chime in. I mean, I'm a product of the public school system and I feel proud of, I've, I mean, I, it is kind of sad to see the, the move is kind of draconian in some ways for me. Uh, at the same time, the field work I have done, I suppose one potential uh, uh, rationale for not celebrating but understanding what this move is about is a lot of my informants would say that in the public school, there is a certain racism that unfolds, which doesn't necessarily happen verbally or with some person said this to my kid, but it's actually happening with the computer programmed uh, uh, softwares they have that decide who is a advanced student, who is a high learning student, et cetera, et cetera. And so a lot of these women feel very disillusioned by what the technology does to their kids. And oftentimes it is about creating a kind of a technological home, nuclear home, but, and yeah, there's, it's, it's kind of boring. I mean, I mean, a lot of these kids are just sitting in their basement on the computer, which is what not, not what I did when I was growing up, but, uh, but so yeah, uh, nevertheless, uh, the question, yeah, there is no uh, answer that I have yet either because I think it is something that will shape in the future and we don't yet know exactly what it'll look like. Um, nevertheless, we have two guests who want to chime in. So first of all, we will have Isaiah. After Isaiah, we got Daisy and Harold. So Isaiah, come on in, buddy. Hi, everybody. Hi, Wendy. Thanks so much for uh, coming on this podcast. Um, I want to sort of continue to press on this point um, that Amanda raised and also going back to your comments, Wendy, about um, what kind of institutions we're in and what their interests really are. Um, I definitely see a lot of what you're saying in uh, University of North Carolina, my own institution, um, in the way that they're discussing the return to campus uh, and, and in a way leaving aside almost deliberately um, the urgency of the question of, of public health or of the spread of, of COVID-19. Um, they're saying, yes, we understand that there's health risks, but we desire, or we know our students desire rather an on-campus college experience, an experience of a certain kind that's going to um, turn them into a certain kind of subject or, or give them a certain kind of feeling that's you know, social and political and economic and all the ways that you're talking about. So um, I wonder if this makes the dynamics that you're talking about even more obvious in a way, or if it points toward a kind of uh, a way in which we should understand these things in terms of um, what these institutions think about our affective attachments, our social attachments, 
and the way that we sort of want to produce our mana, if you want to bring the, com the, the concept of, of mana back into it, um, a certain kind of affectively binding social power of some kind. Um, what are your thoughts on this? I'm, I'm curious. So um, I think college is stupid and that people go to college, um, they mortgage their future, their, their future earnings are colonized by banks um, because they have to fund themselves to go to college and then they graduate from college into the middle of a pandemic and the next great economic depression. And even before that, find low wage jobs, right? So, um, and there's a lot of um, stagecraft and gaslighting that goes into producing the, the scenario where students run around and you know, get high and have sex and have fun. Um, and that's all tied to, you know, um, the branding and everybody running around in, in their college t-shirt and their baseball cap. Um, but I think we need, I think, I think we need, need to interrogate what kind of experience students are, ha are having when they come on campus. And what, what is it that students are so desperate to escape that they have to go put themselves and the people around them at risk to get on campus. Um, in some, in the course of my, um, I, I organized with a, 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 a rank and file caucus at Temple that's um, part of the union, but is, is pushing to center contingent faculty demands. And in the course of my conversations, my one-on-ones, I talked to somebody who is no longer an adjunct and now is doing like advising and she said, yeah, students are desperate. They really want to come back. You know, they're totally, um, you know, driving the thing. And I'm, I'm not really trying to throw shade at young people, um, but what, what is it that is achieved by um, all the things that happen um, when you come back, when students come back to campus versus the really real public health issues um, especially for um, people who don't have health insurance, which is a large chunk of the faculty, the black and brown people who do the security and the maintenance, um, you know, what's the, uh, you know, what's the equation there? How are we weighing those things? Um, but I'm, I'm just super suspicious about the way that the whole college experience is, is packaged at a school like Temple. Many of my students work full-time jobs while they go to school. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know if that answered that, but that's what came to my head. Daisy? Hi, everyone. Thank you for letting me drop in on this conversation. Um, Wendy, I'm thinking about uh, the comment you raised earlier about gentrification and people's relationships to space and place. Um, and so this isn't a fully formed thought, but I'm thinking of a few things. I'm um, interested to hear um, what you have to say about things like land sovereignty and decolonization in Hawaii, uh, a history of Hawaii being used as a leper colony, right, where Native Hawaiians were kind of exiled into this place, um, as well as what's happening now with COVID-19 and public health. Um, so these intersections of the importance of land, right, the relationship to space, the way space has been used um, in the colonial process by empire, um, and then that struggle for decolonization. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the struggle for the land is key, whether we're talking about Cooperation Jackson in Jackson, Mississippi, or the folks in Waianae and the rest of Hawaii, um, or if we're talking about urban gardens, um, you know, around and about Philadelphia. Um, we need land because we need to produce healthy food 
um, and have a relationship with the planet of which we are creatures, right? So I think that that um, land struggles are are very very important. And in in and in Hawaii, you know, people have um, people live on the land that their ancestors have lived on for generations and generations. Black folks like me, we don't have that privilege, right? It's a different relationship in your, in your gentrified neighborhood. Um, but that means something, right? It's a relationship between um, those human beings and that land, which has nurtured them. Um, and um, and an, an understanding of the way in which land is also a being, right? Which land is not, um, you know, in a, a Western sense, some kind of inert, you know, soulless entity. Um, so I think for, for a lot of reasons, economic and spiritual, um, cultural, that the, the struggle for land is very, very important. Harold. Yeah, thank, thank you so much, Wendy, for being here. Um, I wonder, if, like in the introduction, you talk about a, an encampment of people who had been displaced. And as I hear you talking about your critiques of um, the way that we do um, school and institutionalized education here, uh, if there were any lessons that you learned um, from, from that community in terms of how education can be done in a way that's um, in a better relationship with the land and the health of the community. Um, just real quick, I want to say that the other day, um, my partner and I went to drop off um, clothes and ice and stuff at an encampment in Philly, which is called La Quenu. Um, and it was, it reminded me, just being there briefly, reminded me of the encampment on the beach in Waianae. And also to say that in the, in the many years since I've been um, in Waianae, um, uh, there are, I believe, um, many, many more homeless people and many more encampments on the beach. Um, so I guess I think that whether it's um, thinking about, um, I mean, I guess the bottom line is that we need to teach people what they need to learn, right? People, there are things that people need to learn about how to build a house and how to fight for power and how to protect themselves and how to, and how to develop healthy food. Um, and so that helps me understand what education should be about. Um, yeah, deeply. Does that answer your question? Is that, yeah, okay. Yeah, I think um, to follow up on those points uh, with Harold and Wendy, um, the moment in the book where you talk about, I think it's in Dreaming Change, where you say, um, you know, laughter in a Native Hawaiian classroom is a sign of learning, you know, mm -hmm. laughing. But in our, you know, in a Western classroom, it's like, you don't laugh, like what? No, there's no laughter in the classroom. Laughter mm -hmm. is a sign that you're not paying attention, right? And you're not learning. Mm -hmm. But from yeah. a Native Hawaiian perspective, that's the reverse. Right, instead of laughter being a sign of engagement, right, it's mm -hmm. looked at as a sign of disruption. Um, and the same thing with food, right? There's no such thing as an indigenous Hawaiian gathering that doesn't involve food um, because food is a communal experience. Um, and that's also really, you know, different. Um, yeah. Sierra. Uh, I'm just wondering if maybe that observation on, on both of your parts has something to do with what you were saying about humility in like Western institutions and how I mean, honestly, I, I try to make my students laugh all the time because I think that it evens the playing field of like us having a discussion versus uh, 
me lecturing at them in recitations. So, but I'm also not afraid to like, you know, show vulnerability or, or humility. And I wonder if that, if those two things are related of um, just hearing you two speak about that. Well, absolutely. I mean, because what's the myth of the great white man, right? The great white man is perfect, is able-bodied and completely healthy and has a, you know, a, a bead on the whole rest of the planet, right? So the, the whole idea that a white man, a scholar is vulnerable is, um, isn't, doesn't, nobody takes that serious, right? And so I think, you know, um, Ruth Behar is a vulnerable observer, anthropology that'll break your heart. Um, I like that book, right? I like to think that our hearts can break, right? That we can cry in class and out of class um, and that part of the relationship that we have as teachers and students is based on love and community. And I, I don't think I have found much of that um, in, in the academy um, at all. Um, but yeah, so I think everybody needs to be aware both of their power and of their vulnerability. Um, I think that's crucial. Oh, great point. Um, so I think too, to follow up, um, really talking about COVID-19, because uh, in your book, you say quite a bit, has to talk at length about epidemics. Um, picks up a great part of your book because epidemics have, have a history, a long history in Hawaii, specifically having horrific effects. And you talk about how epidemics actually worked in tangent with colonization um, and dispossession of the land. And one of the insights from your discussion that I would um, kind of hope you could talk more about is this idea of how Western medicine approaches epidemics, specifically this idea of individual deviance you talk about, and how um, when you're looking at tracing um, this, how a virus goes about a community, kind of looking, tracing, blaming individuals for irresponsible behavior, and as opposed to how Hawaiian healing approaches epidemics. Um, I wonder if you could talk more about that difference and what you think that difference offers specifically when we think about COVID-19. Um, if we don't get our act together, COVID-19 has the, um, it, it is quite possible that COVID-19 furthers the interests of the 1% or of the ruling class, whatever you want to call it. Um, if we allow ourselves to be brought back to work or campus before we understand that it's safe, um, then we are, um, uh, well, first of all, putting our bodies um, at risk. Um, and why are we putting our bodies at risk, right? Well, why is it in our interest to support the, the machines of this racial capitalism? That doesn't make any, any sense. Um, and I think, I, I, I mean, I think the Trump administration certainly has tried to uh, blame black people, tried to confuse the issue of the racialized data that comes about COVID to make it seem like it's something that black people do, right? Or that it's something that indigenous people do, um, which is the same arguments that were made in the colonization of Hawaii or the conquest of the United States where um, black and brown bodies, subject bodies are treated as if they are inherently flawed as if they are both biologically and morally suspect. Um, and, and that is justification for mowing them down and getting rid of them or taking their land or taking their housing or warehousing them in prison, right? All those things are, are in relation like that. 
Well, that, that's a great point. That's one of the things that I was, oh, Harold has something to say. Sorry, Harold, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, so I was thinking um, the way in which a, a lot of um, the people we were talking to understood colonialism itself to be the disease right, that was plaguing communities. Um, and so, and you, you brought up the term racial capitalism and that's how I started thinking about it as, as um, I was reading through it. Um, so I, I wonder um, how potent that lens or that approach to epidemiology could be in this context so that we see um, people, communities of color being disproportionately impacted as um, one of the symptoms or effects of the disease, which is not necessarily COVID-19, but rather racial capitalism. Yeah. Well, so Rob Wallace, um, whose who's discipline I forget, has written a lot about the way that, you know, sort of um, global capitalism and the um, agro-industrial complex and the, um, the um, getting rid of, of, of wild lands, right? And, and instituting these industrial procedures for farming how that's related to COVID, right? How, how that creates the, the ability for zoonosis to happen um, and for that thing to spread all over the world. So um, it's not to deny um, like the, the reality of a virus, um, but it is to question how the current arrangement of our world um, lends itself to our disease and to the spread of a pandemic. Um, and so Richard um, uh, Levantin, Lewis and Levantin have written, have a piece called Capitalism is a Disease. I completely support that. Um, part of the problem with epidemiology, so like, for example, so, you know, I got a PhD, medical anthropology, really worked hard on, on exploring um, racialized health disparities. So for the last, I don't know, countless decades, people have been able to make this relationship between um, health and race and class but nothing happens. So we know that that's true, at least some of us know, and some of us know in our bodies and other people know from their head, um, but that hasn't changed anything. And I think actually Rob Wallace has a book coming out called Dead Epidemiologists, um, which challenges the, the inability of um, most mainstream epidemiology to understand the ways in which the social relations of our society produce and exacerbate disease. Um, so I think that's also a really, really important point. Um, people, who, um, people who are marginalized in the process of gentrification or conquest or colonialism are pathologized biologically, culturally, spiritually. Um, and those are just things that help that, you know, that, that movement of usurping raping and pillaging to take place. So I think, I think that's a really important insight that what, what disease is, how we understand what disease is, needs to be challenged from the perspective of, of a science of epidemiology, of biomedicine that grew up um, hand in hand with racial capitalism. Um, so that the ways that we understand disease at all need to be challenged. So when people, so I, you know, you know, healthcare for all, Medicare for all, great idea. But there also the reality is that the the ways that people learn healing um, in in you know formalized training, not including midwives and a whole and some other folk, um, it's fucked up. 
You know what I mean? We have to have another better, broader collective understanding of what counts as healing and what counts as, as, as health and disease, I think. Yeah, going along with that um, really quickly, I think um, to get Sierra real quick next on this question, I just wanted to ask to um, follow up with that. The idea of religion there, like uh, this idea and how we're dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, um, specifically with like kind of closing churches and kind of seeing churches and religion as somehow at odds with and even potential threats to the health and well-being of societies. But at the other hand, you know, a lot of black churches provide essential services to communities, um, whether it be housing um, for homeless people, whether it be food, growing food, um, uh, healthcare, right, basic healthcare services. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's a really good point about expanding our notion of health and healing here um, and yeah. how myopic ours is. So, I mean, right now it's not a good idea in many places for people to go sing and breathe on each other in close quarters. Um, but it's also, you know, um, so before I got a PhD, I also have a, a master's degree in, in, um, from Union Theological Seminary where I studied liberation theology. Um, and I guess I would have to say that um, religion also and, and spirituality are also a relationship. Um, and so I want to throw a little shade and do a little critique of some of what counts as, um, as religion across race in this country. Um, what, you know, uh, the um, insights about the co-creation of the world between human beings, the earth and the divine are, are really important, but um, very often missing, especially in heavy duty Christian um, spaces, whether we're talking about black Christianity or any other kind. Um, so um, yeah, I don't, I don't recommend people going and singing and breathing on each other, right? At this moment. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Sierra? Um, that's pretty in line with my question uh, right before was just, there's one point where you talk about how the entanglement, I think is the exact word of Western myth and the production of history um, kind of rob certain groups of their sanity. And I wonder if um, what's going on right now kind of with institutions, whether they be, you know, categorized as religious or, you know, like UNC um, educational institutions are sort of complicit in gaslighting or coercing a lot of us into performing labor that um, the individuals doing the gaslighting are not willing to do them themselves. Um, so I just wonder if like that is a tactic of historical trauma or is it um, a function of it? I, or how are those related, I guess, maybe? Well, I'm thinking about, um, you know, what it's like to be an essential worker um, and um, through, and we're still at the very early stages of the pandemic um, being forced to go to work because if you don't, your babies won't, won't eat um, and how that is seriously crazy making. What does that mean, right? You have to put your life at risk so your babies can eat. Um, so I think there's a lot of um, ways in which um, 
we are made to feel crazy when it is perfectly reasonable to say that I should not have to die to feed my children. You know, um, I think there's a lot of ways in which, um, you know, being different, thinking differently, understanding the cosmos differently um, can make you feel crazy in this current setup. Um, yeah, so I think that that's a really important point. And Ben, please share. Hi. Um, so I'm, I'm not an anthropologist, so all of this has been um, very new to me, but I think there are a lot of intersections with at least my, my concerns in the work that I do in interreligious dialogue and, and the study of history that I, um, I want to throw at, at you because I think I'm, I'm really curious to what your insight is on this. You had mentioned that, um, which really resonated with me, that what counts as religion in this current context is, is really important and it is also pushing the sort of bounds of, of this, this racial capitalism. And in your book, you had cited um, a cultural uh, philosopher, Walter Benjamin, on his storytelling. And so because my area is this, this intellectual history, a few years before that, he wrote a, a little fragment called Capitalism as Religion. And, and the argument is simply that in the West, um, with the, the rise of the Enlightenment and, um, and the Industrial Revolution, the idea of what was um, awe-inspiring and ineffable in the world disappeared. The connections between people, the earth, the divine, all of those things that made us whole um, were replaced by these, um, these sort of chilling um, understandings like statistics and um, economics. But, but what uh, Benjamin argued is that actually it didn't re replace it, it just, um, capitalism becomes a reified form of religion. It changes religion entirely. We have our own clarity of, of economists, we have our own superstitions, and it also creates a hierarchy that we perceive as natural and ordered. Um, so that when we are talking about the economy, I'm hearing us talking about a religion that when the, the people in Texas are saying, sacrifice yourself for commerce, what, what they're doing is actually suggesting that the ineffable other is this mysterious capitalism that, that ultimately produces something good, which is also a reified form of whiteness and, and patriarchy. But that by dying for this particular thing is, is not all that irrational if you're buying into it as a, as a religion. And so what qualifies as religion then is, um, at least in this context, capitalism, because we're using this language in such a way that, that makes sacrifice almost seem reasonable. So I, was, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because it, when you talked about liberation theology and Marxism, like I, I, I fell out of my seat, you know, like you're speaking my language. <laughs> well, I really like what you just did. I think that's, um, that's amazing and that's right. Like, what does it mean when the stock market keeps going up, even when there's like people in line for 10 miles to get some food, right? What the hell is that? And why should we pay that any mind? Why should that have any kind of, you know, why should that make us feel better? Um, so I think, I, think, I think that, in my opinion, both the economy, both capitalism and science have been what replaces religion. Um, in my, in my you know, 10 years or so as an official academic, 
I was um, always amazed at how little faith there was about how little spirituality there was and how what people believed in was science. And I just think that's the funniest thing I've ever heard, because what the hell is that to believe in? You know, what does that have to do with um, the relationships between humans, the divine and the earth? Um, but yes, um, Ben, I think that's um, brilliant. I think you're right. I think that um, uh, that so much, especially, and this isn't just white Christianity, because this is also true in black Christianity, and I believe in uh, Latinx Christianity, there's this whole prosperity gospel thing. And it's just this naked, you know, um, like grabbing for some kind of sense that you're going to get rich too. Right. And it's a perversion of all the things that um, are sacred between human beings and the land and the divine in in the in the, you know, in, as a way to um, benefit or, or try to benefit, like to call benefits to capitalism down on you. Um, so I hope you're going to be writing about that because that's super interesting. Ben. Oh, I've, yeah, I've written about it. Uh, like you, nobody reads it. So. Oh, well, like, want to send it to me? I'll read it. <laughs> okay. Put it in chat. I'll definitely read it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's how it is at academic. You write something, no one reads it. But <laughs> part of what you were talking about there. Um, I wonder, too, um, so as we're finishing up here, just kind of maybe one last question, if anybody wants to ask it otherwise also because one thing that I think that um, we've kind of hit on a couple of times here is the importance of history and remembering specifically when we think about healing and the importance that remembering history plays I wonder if you know you can talk more about that in your work uh, specifically with Native Hawaiians and also maybe related to um, I found something that's interesting during the COVID-19 pandemic is at the same time that we're confronting this health crisis there is an effort among the youth and among the population to rethink America's history. A kind of sense of like, you know, you know, it tends to be youth focused, maybe not always, but other people. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't think it's a coincidence that at this moment, it is that the exact moment really that we're trying to rethink our history and we're remembering. Um, mm -hmm. So I wonder if you could talk more about that. Well, I mean, part of what I learned from indigenous Hawaiians is that all that Western myth that's called history is a justification for the, um, the complications of their present lives. And that there's something else there that we need to hold on to, to bring forth and to remember. So I think when, um, you know, when people in Richmond attack the Robert E. Lee statue or the Christopher Columbus statue, we're saying, that we're tired of these statues, um, which are destructive and which have harmed us and which continue to harm us standing in for history when there's so much else that's there, right? When there's so much else struggle and life and soul and spirit that's there. So I think that that is really, really important. And I, I have to say, I think for white people who sometimes can't figure out where they fit in this conversation, I wanna say that um, if you read Capital, you will, you will learn that Cap, the origins of capitalism are the, in the dispossession of European peasants. Um, and then those people too had a relationship with the land that was besmirched and disrupted by, um, by the onset of capital. Um, and that all of us have some shit to remember about what was done to us, all of us do. And you know, Europeans have been a very destructive force, but sometimes the destruction was towards other Europeans. So I think we have to be really clear 
um, on that and that remembering the past in different ways because part of what it means to be black or brown or indigenous is to live in a society that seeks to shame you for who you are and where you come from when we know that in my body I know that we came from a whole place that was disrupted that was disrupted because people want to make money and make profit and take over um, and so uh, reaching back and understanding how to take from the past and make it relevant to the future is part of what we need to do to be proud, to, to understand that we are not shameful beings, that the enemy is shameful, shameful, but that um, we have been struggling to survive and that we will figure that out. Uh, what a great way to conclude. I feel like that really encompassed the entire argument. That's great. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Wendy Marshall, for joining us for this conversation. It's really good. Um, so I think we'll wrap it up today. Thank you again, Wendy Marshall and everyone who joined us today um, on our very first inaugural episode. Um, so join us two weeks from now for our next episode where we where we will be discussing uh, Mosquito Trails by Alex Nading. Um, so salute. Thanks. For more information about how you can get involved and make change in your community today, please visit the Contagion Religion and Cities webpage at religionandcities.org slash contagion dash podcast.